From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Jatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Today, we're inside the quaint one-bedroom apartment of a Porter Ranch tenant named Patricia Viagra. She's sitting at her kitchen table, shuffling through a thick black binder stuffed with hundreds of pages of legal documents. This binder has all the tabs that we need to have to show in jury trial and also for the judge. Has some of the complaints, the answer that we did through the toolkit that is online, the settlement of the case and all the tabs that the jury and the judge and the opposite counsel, they need as proof. A few months ago, Viagra and her husband were served an eviction notice. Since then, preparing for trial has become her full-time job. That's because if you're a tenant facing eviction in L.A., you're not guaranteed a lawyer, meaning you very well may have to defend yourself. As COVID-era tenant protections phase out, evictions have already shot back up to pre-pandemic levels. Well, tomorrow, Councilmember Nithya Raman is set to propose a policy that would guarantee tenants facing eviction the right to a lawyer in court. Well, meanwhile, some folks have been getting savvier at navigating the process on their own. KCRW Zoe Matthew has the story. When Patricia Viagra and her husband found out they might be getting evicted, they had no idea what to do next. My husband was very stressed out. He was vomiting. He couldn't sleep. He was crying. He was sitting on the the um, on the edge of the bed, and he was like, "What am I going to do? What we're going to do? What am I going with you and the kids? What am I going to do?" The couple was already going through a difficult time. Viagra had left her job at the airport due to a back injury, and her husband was working long hours at his package delivery job to keep up with a recent $400 rent increase that had raised the monthly price of their unit to more than $2,500. Because of this, they notified their landlord that they would be a little late on June rent. They hoped the property owners would understand. So what he was asking was just to the landlord to be able to work out things for a month, only for a month. When they instead got an eviction notice, Viagra started looking for legal help. But she quickly realized that finding a lawyer that was in their price range, who could speak to her husband in Spanish, and was also willing to defend tenants was next to impossible. I make a research probably for a week, and then it was only one attorney that he didn't even speak Spanish. Eviction lawsuits are tried in civil court, and so tenants don't get public defenders like the ones provided in criminal cases, even though losing an eviction case might result in drastic consequences, like homelessness or displacement. Gary Blazy, a public interest law professor at UCLA, points out that because tenants rarely have a lawyer, while landlords almost always do, the odds are stacked against these defendants in court. Even though the cases um, may seem small in the grand scheme of legal affairs, they're actually very complicated, and it takes a good deal of knowledge to be able to, um, to provide an adequate defense. In one 2004 study, Blazy found that of 151 Los Angeles tenants who represented themselves in eviction trials, not a single one succeeded in winning their case. But the reality is, most tenants never even make it to court in the first place. That's because many don't know how important it is to respond to their eviction notice. This allows landlords to win by default. A tenant uh, has a lot of rights given to them by 
the state and by the city and by the county, but those rights evaporate six days after a tenant receives a complaint for uh, eviction unless they're able to get to court and file an answer. So a lawyer would change those things dramatically. In 2017, New York became one of the first cities to pass a law guaranteeing a right to counsel for tenants. After it was implemented, about 84% of those who received a lawyer were able to stay in their homes. Today, 15 different cities in three states have passed their own versions of that law. Many are seeing better trial outcomes for tenants, and even decreases in eviction filings overall. In L.A., a coalition of housing advocates and legal service providers has been urging officials to pass a similar law since 2018. Before the pandemic, they were getting pretty close to making it happen. But Pablo Estupinan, director of L.A.'s Right to Counsel campaign, says COVID funding concerns got in the way. Officials instead launched the tenant outreach and education program Stay Housed L.A. It's a program. It's not a right to counsel It was never intended to guarantee every tenant legal representation in eviction cases. The countywide initiative offers workshops and webinars, in addition to funding for about 3,300 people to get lawyers each year. But that's just a fraction of the more than 50,000 eviction cases program leaders expect to see in 2023. So as you can imagine, that does not meet the actual need. Ryan Curry is one of the few tenants who was able to get representation through the Stay Housed LA program. On the first day of his jury trial, he sat in the Compton Courthouse cafeteria with two lawyers from the nonprofit legal aid provider, Basta Universal. So, I just want to make you kind of feel comfortable and less stressed. Yeah. Um, As comfortable as I can be in this body right now, yeah. Curry, a 47-year-old single father, suffered from a number of health problems three years ago which left him unable to work. While he was waiting on his disability payments to arrive, his apartment was sold to a new landlord who illegally raised his rent and then promptly tried to evict him. He feared that if he didn't fight back, he and his nine-year-old son would wind up unhoused. I have no place else to go. I have no money to relocate with. Uh, It wouldn't be my choice to fight in court right now. I've got medical issues and a son that needs me. I I didn't want to be in this position. Curry's lawyers from Basta have helped him untangle L.A.'s complex web of tenant protections and put together defenses he didn't even know he had. I'm fortunate uh, that, you know, I was able to qualify, you know, for for their assistance Um, because, to be honest, not much else has gone in my direction, you know. In the end, his counsel got the landlords to drop the case altogether. Housing advocates say more Angelinos could see outcomes like this if a full right to counsel law is enacted. And that reality might be inching a little closer. Part of the funding from Measure ULA, a city tax measure passed last year, is expected to be set aside for a right to counsel program. And council member Nithya Raman is set to propose the law to the city council this week. County officials are also considering expanding Stay Housed LA's legal aid capacity. But even if these efforts are approved, they'll likely take years to roll out, says Estupinian of the Right to Counsel Coalition. It will take some time to scale up. Uh, We're talking about going from about 50 attorneys to 400 attorneys to fully meet the needs of the county. In the meantime, as tenants brace for a wave of post-COVID evictions, some are taking matters into their own hands. Tony Carfello, an organizer for the Los Angeles Tenants Union, says union members are helping their neighbors file eviction answers, sharing trial experiences, and showing up to support each other in court. 
So many members in the tenant union have been through these processes, so they talk about what they know. Um, then that person hears about their neighbor going through the same thing. They send them right to us, too. When housing rights attorney Elena Pop isn't hopping from courthouse to courthouse defending tenants, she runs Zoom webinars through her nonprofit eviction defense network, which help hundreds prepare for trial. We're teaching them how to fish, and we're teaching them things that people thought we couldn't teach them to do. As for Patricia Viagra, the Porter Ranch tenant, she started attending Pop's webinars a few months back. Last week, her husband, whose name is on the lease, had to make his second court appearance. Watching him present the defense they'd worked so hard on, Viagra felt incredibly proud. My husband was so kind. He was so polite. But at the same time, he was so sharp. And then he was showing his binder and he said, I have all my evidence right here. The plaintiffs showed up without any evidence and asked for the trial to be postponed until March. In the meantime, Viagra says she's helping another defendant she met at court prepare for her own eviction trial. For KCRW, I'm Zoe Matthew. Coming up on GLA, a couple went to Mexico to celebrate their one-year anniversary. But tragically, horrifically, a husband didn't make it out alive. Now the family of an OC public defender wants to know what happened. Was it a terrible accident or was it homicide? That's next on GLA. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Onward now with Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiatakis. Over the weekend, family and friends gathered at a memorial service for Elliot Blair. He's the 33-year-old Orange County public defender who died in Rosarito, Mexico, one month ago. At that service on Saturday, his sister, Candice Chavez-Wilson, shared her grief. His loss is devastating to our families, and I don't think that we will ever feel whole again or be repaired. But... I just want everyone here to remember and to honor what an amazing human being he was. But how and why did Elliot Blair die? Authorities in Mexico say it was an accident, a case of someone drunk falling off of a ledge three stories to his death. But Blair's family disagrees. They say an independent autopsy still in progress will show that Elliot Blair was murdered. Even that autopsy conducted in Mexico shows some sort of suspicious activity. Tony Saavedra, investigative reporter at the Orange County Register, is with us right now. Hey, Tony. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. Um, this is a, a terrible story, a sad one for sure. Uh, Elliot was in Rosarito with his wife, um, Kimberly. She's also an OC public defender. They, they were celebrating their wedding anniversary. And even before they got back to the hotel the night of his death, they were basically shaken down by by police, right? Uh, yes. They were driving back to the hotel, and they got pulled over for uh, allegedly rolling through a stop sign. When they were pulled over, the police uh, officer demanded money. 
Um, I don't know how much they, they uh, Kim can't remember how much, just that they didn't have it all. Elliot offered to drive back with them to the police station and use his credit card and uh, and get a receipt. And of course, you know, the officers, uh, the two officers that pulled him over uh, did not want to do that. So they agreed to take everything that, that Elliot and, and Kim had in their wallets, which was about $160. Um, they also asked them where they uh, where they were staying, and and they told them they're they're staying at the Las Rocas uh, Resort and Spa. So this occurred uh, about uh, um, less than two hours before Elliot was found dead. I want to make it clear that they're not. They think that that's an important part of the story, but they're certainly not making any connection between the two events, right? The shakedown and Elliot's death. They're not alleging that the two are connected but they want it investigated. It's, it's a fact that occurred that night. And like any other fact, they want that investigated and perhaps excluded as being connected. Mexican authorities initially said, Tony, that Elliot fell off of a ledge drunk while trying to shoo some pigeons away. Now, Elliot's wife says that's not true. It's a, it's a twisting of what she told them. That sounds like basic police work to correct that statement is that is that correct yes what she told them when she talked to the um, investigators after uh, Elliot's uh, death uh, at the scene was that earlier in the day there were pigeons up in the tiles and the roof in the ceiling of the hallway and he had made a comment about them and somehow that got twisted into them saying that she told him he went outside in his boxers and t-shirt to shoo away noisy pigeons. After Elliot was found dead, this was in Baja, California. So after after he was found dead, the local police, the, the DA there, the attorney general in Baja, they made some pretty unusual requests on what to do with the body. Uh, this is according to Elliot's family, by the way. So, so what, what, what was going on there? Several times they had recommended that they cremate the body in Mexico. In Mexico, um, they also unilaterally, without permission from the family, embalmed the body, making it almost impossible to do a, an independent um, blood alcohol uh, test. Uh, the attorney general's office denies that that it was at their behest and that they would never do that. So there's confusion as to why the body was embalmed. Correct. I mentioned there are two autopsies, one in Mexico, another being done here in Southern California. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what each one shows or will show. Uh, we were able to obtain the, the one that was done in Mexico, as well as the photos. And what they show that's troubling to the family is that there are bruises on his arms that the family thinks could be defensive wounds. There's also marks on his legs, floor burns, if you will, that they believe indicate that he was dragged. Now in the uh, um, independent autopsy that, that was done here, the results are due in about four to five weeks, but I'm told that they will show that he had 40 fractures to the back of his head, which the family uh, is concerned about because he was found face first. They're, the family is saying, you know, 40 fractures to, to, to a skull. That's not just somebody falling off a ledge. 
Well, that's not somebody falling off a ledge face down. What recourse does the family have? I mean, you know, legally speaking, if they believe, you know, all this information, this evidence points to Elliot Blair being murdered. Yeah, they're they're in, in kind of a standoff with the Mexican authorities. We took that question to the State Department, and they basically told us in an email that they don't get involved in crimes committed in other countries. They don't get involved in crime? What? The State Department? The United States State Department? If you're the victim of a crime in another country, it's up to the, to the uh, local authorities. That said, the family, after the case is closed, they have 10 days to appeal that decision to a state judge in Mexico. When the judge makes his decision, there's nowhere else they can go in state court. However, they can ask for an amparo proceedings in federal court and ask a federal judge to overturn it. In talking with lawyers who practice in Mexico, they also said another way to go is the court of public opinion. To make a cause celeb out of it, get officials in the U.S. Uh, involved, and to use that publicity to pressure the Mexican government into doing something. They're very concerned about tourism down there. And according to the lawyers that we talked to, this kind of pressure can be very persuasive to them. Uh, we also talked to uh, Congressman Lou Correa, who said he's going to get involved now, and he's going to personally take the case to the State Department and to the consulate in Tijuana, the U.S. consulate in Tijuana, and he's going to try to push the issue. Tony Saavedra, investigative reporter over at the Orange County Register. Tony, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about it. Okay, well, thank you. More Greater L.A. now from KCRW, and there were elections a few months back, as you'll recall, and they've had consequences in Orange County. Uh, Madam Clerk, it's been moved, it's been seconded. Please call the roll. All right. Councilmember Kalmick. No. Mosier. No. Vandermark. Yes. Strickland. Aye. McKeon. Aye. Bolton. No. Burns. Yes. The item passes 4-3. So we're on to the next item. The item passes 4-3. That's the Huntington Beach City Council last week of the vote that didn't go down so well with the folks that attended the meeting. The new conservative majority on the council passed that ordinance that bans all flags on city property except the American, California, Orange County, Huntington Beach, and various military flags. Doesn't exactly sound like something that would get a crowd up in arms, but there was a little more to the story. Gustavo Ariano is a columnist at the LA Times. He's here with today's KCRW Orange County Line. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. So what was the real point of this new ordinance? 
all of this has to do with a rainbow flag and a rainbow flag that in recent years in recent decades really has come to represent LGBT pride. It went up. It started going up last year with a Democratic majority city council. But now you have a conservative majority city council. And so they decided, well, the pride flag distinguishes certain groups and we shouldn't do that. So let's not fly any flags that have to uh, do with recognizing specific groups, ethnic, uh, sexual orientation, religious groups. And let's just do the old school California, U.S., Huntington Beach, and, of course, the military branches flags. Does the rainbow flag fly all year at City Hall in Huntington Beach? No, no. This is a thing. And this is actually a movement that's been going across California for the past couple of years where you have LGBT residents going to city councils and say, hey, during Pride Month, can you please fly the flag, especially at a time where you have had increases in anti-LGBT hate crimes going on? I know in Anaheim, this happened a couple of years ago. I covered stories in the Central Valley and small little cities like Wasco and Delano, where those city councils are saying, yeah, we'll fly the flag. And of course, you'll have people say, no, this promotes division and exclusivity. And that's what the city council said, that this is not anti-LGBTQ measure, the reason why they're taking it down, but rather that it promotes divisiveness. Uh, had anybody complained about the rainbow flag at Huntington Beach City Hall? Of course, it's Huntington Beach. You have people complaining about uh, vaccination mandates, about illegal immigration, about uh about anything that reeks of liberalism. So, I mean, the fact that there was even a, honey, a Democratic majority in Huntington Beach last year, that was incredible. The fact that there was a black woman council member who still is, Rhonda Bolton, on the council, that was incredible. So, but in this past election, in 2022, Huntington Beach swung back to being old school Huntington Beach and elected a conservative majority. And so they literally said it was, again, the, the council members, like Pat Burns, for instance, the person who came and uh, suggested the motion, he said, look, I have a niece and nephew who are gay. I love them very much. So this is nothing about being anti-LGBTQ, but this is about promoting unity. And for him, him and for his fellow council members who voted alongside him to take down the rainbow flag. The rainbow flag was not promoting unity. One of the, the council members who voted against the new rule, this is Dan Kalmick, right, said this this could be a problem for Huntington Beach when the Olympics come to L.A. in 2028. Why why is that or why does he think that? It's just bad optics. Look, there's different months that the United States government and California recognizes for groups. So, I mean, February is Black History Month. Uh, September 15th through roughly October 15th is Hispanic Heritage Month. So there's also Pride Month. And this is a time, especially when you have a group that had been uh, denigrated and still is denigrated by large swaths of the population. But there's been gains and they want to have an acknowledgement from you know, their local representatives that we care about you. And so when you and especially Huntington Beach is a big tourism town, the beach, the, you know, the downtown, various things. Now, a lot of LGBTQ visitors could see this and say, like, well, I'm not going to go there and spend my money. I'll go to a friendlier LGBTQ city like, say, Laguna Beach or even Anaheim, for that matter. Wouldn't they have to fly the the Olympic rings flag in Huntington Beach if there's something there, if there's a surfing thing or right? 
<laughs> like, hey, and it's also rainbow colors, so watch out Huntington Beach for that. But it's funny <laughs> because here you have this conservative majority that has spoken out very much about government overreach, has spoken out very much about cancel culture, and now they're canceling a flag, and they are being the epitome of government overreach in there. And so, again, in Huntington Beach, it's still a very conservative town, so no one's going to be complaining a lot to the point of any recalls or anything like that, but it just seems like of all the issues that Huntington Beach has to deal with, the flying of flags at City Hall or any city property, it's the last issue that anyone should have a problem with. And frankly, it made Huntington Beach look like a far more welcoming place, which is desperate PR that the city has needed over decades of being the opposite place, a place that specifically wanted anyone who wasn't middle class and white out of there. Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the LA Times and a regular, of course, here on Greater LA. Gustavo, thanks. Gracias. That's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and you're going to meet a Long Beach wedding officiant who's offering a $14 special all day. So the question is, who's getting married? And you'll also hear from the curator of LA's Museum of Love on Valentine's Day tomorrow on GLA. Share a story with us and your thoughts, too, kcrw.com slash GLA, and get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search KCRW Greater L.A. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Sonia Geis, John Meek, Phil Richards, Amy Talk, Carlos Ramirez, Mike Vogel, and Christian Bordal all put time and ears into this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Have yourself a great night. <laughs>